Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, senior Chinese diplomat proposes four points for global South cooperation. Anthony Blinken has used a trip to a Pacific island nation to criticize China's regional engagement. The International Monetary Fund has lifted growth forecast, but economic challenges persist. And Harvard University in the United States is facing U.S. federal investigation over legacy admissions. So, if you want to listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching "World Today." Senior Chinese diplomat Wang Yi has proposed four points on strengthening cooperation in the global South, calling on countries to join hands to promote peace and common development. And Mr. Wang Yi made this remark on Tuesday when he was attending a BRICS High Representatives meeting on security affairs in South Africa. He advocated eliminating conflicts and promoting development, unity, and cooperation. One has also stressed about the importance of openness and inclusiveness, warning against ideological and block confrontation. He added, "China, as a member of the global South." Is willing to work with other developing countries in building a community with a shared future for mankind. So, joining us now on the line is Professor Zhu Feng, Dean of the School of International Studies with Nanjing University. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you、uh, to be with me. Okay, so eliminating conflicts and building peace jointly is really the first point raised by Mr. Wang Yi. His elaboration on this particular point included sustainable security ideas and respecting the legitimate security concern of all countries, of all parties. So, what can you tell from here regarding China's mentality on security? Yeah, I think the Chinese. Um, mentality on security, of course,、uh, is very、uh, highly and also very concentratively just uh, uh, reflect in the Chinese top leader、uh, Xi Jinping's global security initiative. Of course, with this initiative, the Beijing very strongly advocates some sort of、uh, joint, cooperative, and、uh, protracted and sustained. You know, cooperation in the world. I think the reason is very simple. Behind the Chinese such a、uh, brilliant, you know, advocate, one is we also see the world now is suffering a lot from some sort of growing instability, almost all around the world. And we will see the three years pandemic,、uh, COVID pandemic, almost came to the end. But the problem is it also、uh, constitute a very hard. Hit to a lot of developing countries. So then, where they see the numbers of poverty people just very badly, and then actually rebounding in the past three years. So put all such things together, then we will see China's initiative on security, particularly such as security, not just how they're based on some、mm. sort of where they. Uh, culture or ideology、uh, center. The security should be based on the community、uh, building, you know, driven, and even、uh, with a、uh, cooperation and communication center.、Uh, mm. Some、yeah. sort of such an endorsement. It's、yeah. very important.、Mm. So another point raised by one is pursuit of common development. In particular, Mr. Wang Yi said that countries in the global south. Uh, how to work together to push developed economies, developed countries, to fulfill their promises regarding, say, some of their pledged development aid to the global south. So, why do you think this mission is important to the global south? Yeah, I think、uh, global south is, we say,、uh, very vivid. You know. <laughs> Representation of a developing country's world. So then we will see if the uh, uh, local economy is truly、uh, struggling, and even some sort of domestic instability. 
still lingering, particularly when then we will see the uh, Ukraine war now is also threatening the uh, very sufficient you know, surprise of food and oil and gas. Then we will see the developing country now is commonly facing some sort of a hard time created by a couple of the international, you know, the, uh, we say such a, a rivalry and even some sort of economic slowdown. So then from this point, I think the development join the hands among all the developing countries, particularly by by what? I think uh, uh, China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, very vividly and strongly advocate. Uh, it's by the you know the cooperation, by the inclusiveness, mm-hmm. by the sustained you know the uh, consultation and the communication. Such a development, if could just uh, how they persisting forever, then it will benefit the mm-hmm. all the developing world. Okay, so regarding openness and inclusiveness. Uh, we understand that Mr. Wang Yi has actually called on respecting each individual country's own choice regarding its own development path or model. Now, Professor Zhu, you know better than I do, because initially after the end of the Cold War, the so-called Washington Consensus, namely embracing the free market and a sort of multi-party electoral system, became a very tempting idea for many countries in the, in the global south. So let's put it in this way. Now, after so many years of experience politically and economically, do you think there is a general realization in the global south that each country deserves to have the right to pursue a model based on its own national conditions? Yes, I think it's a very uh, great point because well considered Recent years, the United States now is leading some sort of a new uh, Washington Consensus endorsement. They mm-hmm. want to just uh, work on some sort of uh, deglobalization by taking China as the number one, some sort of yeah, competitor, and just trying to create some sort of, we say, decoupling uh, in the movement to get to China and a number of the other developing countries out of the bus. So from this point, then we will see such a, we say, less openness or opposition to openness and inclusiveness truly is a big obstacle that what the community should unify to remove. Otherwise, then we will see the world economy well fractured and then we'll see the uh, global uh, economic integration also will be under serious danger. So far as this point, I think uh, uh, Chinese top uh, uh, diplomat, Mr. Wang Yi's proposal, is very relevant, particularly I think it is uh, commonly shared, you know, the thoughts mm-hmm. throughout the uh, uh, global south. So then far as this point, I think uh, uh, keeping the uh, openness and inclusiveness usually is a very, very solid base for the world to continue to stick to if we want have some sort of more and more country get into the belt of economic development and social advancement. So mm. far as this point, the Chinese view is very, very well echoed. Yeah, okay. So definitely we need more diversity regarding different development model, political model, that's for sure. Now, of course, the final point by one is about unity and a cooperation. And actually, unity is something that the West is also emphasizing in the wake of the war in Ukraine. Now, compared to the so-called Western unity uh, do you think there is anything different about the kind of unity that China is trying to promote in the global south? Yeah, I think uh, it's not so right now. China just uh, uh, came uh, very uh, passionately after the global south. Then we obviously even back to the 40 uh, years ago, the Beijing also very strongly advocated the third world uh, unity uh, mm. theory. Today, then we will see the China's Global South you know, Initiative, of course, is a very uh, undeniable part of the Chinese foreign policy legacy. 
But it's also very uh, uh, vividly just to reflect some sort of the Chinese uh, foreign policy uh, uh, dominant, uh, foreign policy uh, basic color, because China is not a take itself as the always permanent member of the global south. China's uh, economic growth also could help in the leading the global south into the new stage of the social and economic uh, development. But the problem, as you know, the unity and some sort of a cooperation usually is also very, very uh, indispensable in the assets for the uh, developing country to work together. Mm-hmm. From this point, I think China's uh, uh, new advocate is just the reiteration of the Chinese uh, traditional uh, foreign policy assets, and it's also very powerfully you know, reflecting on the, uh, some sort of a solid base to keep the uh, developing countries working together. Mm. So some geopolitical commentators as well as um, China China affairs observers are nowadays increasingly paying attention to China's uh, diplomacy with the vast global south community. And uh, in some of these people's observation, a landmark event happening this year is, of course, this uh, Iran-Saudi rapprochement brokered by Beijing. In the meantime, their attention is, of course, on things like the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, as well as well as uh, these recent uh, three initiatives regarding development, security, and civilization put forward by President Xi Jinping. Now, some people are even saying that China's um, global South diplomacy is a big challenge to the West, especially the United States. What is your thought about this, Professor? Yeah, I, I think that kind of a thought to take the China's global South, you know, the advocation as some sort of Chinese leverage, you know, the vis-a-vis the West, um, I, I have to say is a very short-sighted and it's also misunderstood. The reason is very, very uh, important, as I mentioned. So strongly advocating uh, unity and a cooperation among the global south is the continuity of the Chinese foreign policy legacy. It's also very, very strongly demonstrating some sort of a China's consistency of the foreign policy priority because we're also the biggest developing countries in the world. So China could have a lot of uh, commonality with the uh, or you know the uh, developing uh, uh, mm. neighborhood, uh, developing uh, you know the water community uh, members. So from this point, I think it's also some sort of uh, we say uh, re-demonstration of China's uh, some sort of culture system. Uh, uh, deeply rooted, you know, diplomacy, uh, diplomatic, you know, color and strategy. On the other hand, even today, China also asked the United States to get back to the uh, manageable and healthy uh, relationship between Beijing and Washington. Because mm-hmm. we consider it also will be very conducive to the world in a peace and a stability. So global South advocacy is not just as some sort of a Chinese way to mm. create the new divide or fractural, you know, the confrontation with the West. If understanding a global South initiative from this point, I think it's not just a matter, but also very badly misleading. Mm. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. That was Professor Zhu Feng, Dean of the School of International Studies with Nanjing University. You're listening to World Today. Stay tuned. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has used a trip to Tonga to criticize China's behavior in the South Pacific region. The top U.S. diplomat suggested that China's regional engagement has grown increasingly problematic, alleging that there is a lack of transparency in Chinese investments. 
Blinken has also touted U.S. commitment to both Tonga and the broader Pacific Island region. His trip is the latest by a senior American official to the region. And last year, for your information, U.S. President Joe Biden hosted a first-ever summit with、uh, with Pacific Island leaders in Washington D.C. And a second summit of its kind is scheduled to be held later this year. Joining us now on the line is Professor Chen Hong, Executive Director of the Asia Pacific Studies Center with East China Normal University. Thank you very much for joining us. Good to be with you. Now, frankly speaking, Professor. Do you see anything new from Blinken's、um, comment here, or would you say they are simply,、um, you know, a kind of、um, repetition of the old cliche about China? Well, I think to call Blinken's remarks as a cliche is already a kind of euphemistic overstatement. They are,、mm-hmm. in fact, repetitions of lies and rumors aiming to disrupt and sabotage China's, you know, successful cooperation with the. Pacific Island countries. As a matter of fact, as you just mentioned, the recent couple of years have seen the、uh, United States fren- frenetically, you know, engaged in disparaging and vilifying, you know, China and China's relations with the、uh, Pacific countries. The fact that there has been continuously a succession of、uh, U.S. diplomats, you know, visiting the region, you know, with promises of financial and other, you know, in-kind aid and the opening or reopening of、uh, U.S. embassies indicates clearly. A kind of strategic anxiety Washington is experiencing. I think, first of all, the United States is、uh, deeply worried that China has been gaining success in the Pacific region with aid programs and cooperation projects. The thing that worries the Biden administration most is that the governments and peoples in the Pacific countries welcome China's programs and projects. That is why I say the、uh, United States is experiencing this strategic, you know, anxiety. Secondly, you know, previously the United States has been relegating the role of、uh, leadership in the South Pacific to Australia, which in turn, you know, regards the region as its backyard. But the reason ten years have seen, you know, Australia losing the trust and reliance from the,、uh, you know, Pacific Island countries, even though Australia contrived its new, you know, Pacific step-up strategy, but that has pathetically little outcome of consequence. That is why the United States has decided, you know, to do the job yourself. And you see, Blinken is now visiting Tonga, and Lloyd Austin is also visiting Papua New Guinea. Such a flurry and frenzy is, in fact, a reflection of a deep-rooted worry that it is losing the ground to China, which Washington imagines as its rival in the region.、Hmm. Now, putting away some particular American officials' rhetoric. Do you think the region's、uh, debt level, for example, owed to Chinese investors, which is said to be a main、uh, Western concern, do you think this issue is really a problem? Well, I don't think the West, or in this case, the United States, is really concerned because the so-called debt trap is basically, you know, from the very beginning, a fabrication concocted con- concocted by the West to vilify, you know, China's cooperation with the. Many developing countries. They have been lying about the so-called debt level to disrupt China's relations with, with for example, like African countries, with the Belt and Road Partner countries, and and now with the uh, uh, you know Pacific Island countries. Because the so-called debt trap is fundamentally a lie. Because first of all, by calling it a trap, it becomes a deliberate attempt, a kind of deceptive trick to snare other countries. And secondly, such a scenario in which the debt level would result in Uh, you know the loss of sovereignty has never ever taken place. You know in China's relationship with、uh, its partners. So when China and the、uh, Pacific Island countries carry out mutually beneficial cooperation in various fields, the United States and its allies jump to you know malign the、uh, cooperation to, to put on the pretense of providing advices or warnings to talk about the possibility of the、uh, Pacific Island countries losing their sovereignty because of the、uh, high level、uh, de- high level of debt. But if you ask whether they have any proof, evidence to prove this uh, uh, kind of you know, sensationalism, they simply cannot produce anything. So I think all the mythology of the so-called debt trap is a part of a conspiracy to slander China and its cooperation with the Pacific countries. In fact, with all its partners, the fundamental task target for this alarmist deploy, this, this scheme, is to coax and coerce the Pacific island countries to. Distance themselves from China, which you know, to tell the truth, nobody, no Pacific country has have、uh, you know bought this fabrication at all.、Mm. 
Now it's interesting to note, Professor Chen, that、mm. when Mr. Wang Yi, the senior Chinese diplomat, paid a visit to the region last last year, sometime last、mm. year,、uh, mm. what he was、uh, talking about throughout his whole visit was all about how China and countries in that particular region. Could strengthen cooperation, you know, bilaterally or multilaterally for mutual good. It seems he didn't openly say anything negative or bad about U.S. engagement in the region. So, how would you look at this、um, contrast between Mr. Blinken and Mr. Wan in this regard? Does this tell us anything about the differences between、uh, China and the United States in terms of? Uh, in terms of the way they、um, approach this region, well, in fact, Mr. Wang Yi pledged very clearly. He said China is open to a third-party cooperation. So, so China's cooperation in the region is never exclusive. If the United States or Australia or any other country is willing to engage themselves in the、uh, you know sincere collaboration with the Pacific Island countries to improve the local infrastructure, to improve the local economy, you know, to elevate the, the local people's livelihood, China will never object to that and is in fact happy to work in conjunction with any Western countries. China has never disparaged. The、uh, you know the aid programs or the investments and the trade and you know development projects of Western countries, including the United States in the region. You are very right to point out that the differences between Mr. Wang Yi and、uh, you know、uh, Mr. Blinken, which in fact reflects the differences between China and the United States. China has always adopted this principle of mutual respect, mutual understanding, mutual trust, and mutual benefits in its relations with other countries. That is why within a decade. China has been very positively recognized and welcomed by the、uh, Pacific Island countries, and China's cooperation with the countries has been successful and fruitful. Okay, so of course, another major headline this week is French President Emmanuel Macron's trip to this particular region. It has been described as a historic trip because, in addition to a few French overseas territories, Macron is also visiting independent countries like Vanuatu and Papua New Guinea. So, what do you think is the geopolitical motive behind Macron's trip? And by the way, judging from his trip this week, do you think Paris or President Macron himself? Has moved on from this kind of、um, unhappiness and even grievances over a cancelled submarine deal、uh, with Australia because of AUKUS. I won't overthink, you know, you know, you know, to overreact on Macron's、uh, visit to the region because, as you said, Macron is visiting a number of、uh, French overseas territories. He is visiting New Caledonia, for example, because there is an independence movement. So part of his mission is to negotiate with the pro-independence activists in、uh, New Caledonia. Of course, you know, on his trip, he is also visiting a couple of other countries, as you said, Vanuatu and PNG. But as the、uh, French president's office said in a statement, Macron's visit is not targeted at China in the region.、But、I think some recently, you know, some you know Western media outlets have been setting off some kind of antagonism between. China and France by、mm. directly or indirectly, you know, you know, making direct reference or insinuating, you know, that Macron's visit is aiming at, you know, offsetting the so-called China's influence or competing in the same race as the United States with China. They do have, you know, some of the media、uh, outlets do have the ulterior motive to align France with. The uh, uh, United States to out、uh, outcompete China, but to,、uh, and also to instigate a hostile confrontation between China and other Western countries, such as France. You mentioned that the uh, uh, French uh, grievances over the submarine deal or the aborted, you know,、yeah. uh, you know, submarine deal with Australia. I think the aftershock is still lingering, and there is indeed a kind of chasm, you know, a kind of distrust that is forming and developing between France. And the United States, and of course also Australia, because it is plain to any eye that the United States, United States cannot be, you know, trusted or even with its friends and allies or partners such as, you know, France. Hmm. Thank you as always for joining us. That was Professor Chen Hong, Executive Director of the Asia Pacific Studies Center, East China Normal University. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back after a short break.
You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin, Beijing. The International Monetary Fund has improved its outlook on global economic growth for this year, according to the IMF World Economic Outlook update for July. The global economy will expand by three percent this year and next. Compared to its April forecast, the growth projection for 2023 have increased by 0.2 percentage points and remain unchanged for the year 2024. The IMF has upgraded its forecasts for both advanced and emerging economies. The forecast for China is unchanged at 5.2 percent for 2023 and 4.5 percent for 2024. So, for more, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Professor Yan Liang, a professor of economics with William Mati University. So, the IMF projecting 5.2 percent growth for Chinese economy this year, which is 2.2 percentage points higher than their projection of global growth. So, what do you make of the latest view by the IMF on the Chinese economy? Right. So, I think the IMF remains very optimistic about China's、um, economic recovery. Um, and I think that is supported by some of the recent data. When we look at the first half of China's growth rate, and that was 5.5 percent.、Um, so if you know China keeps the same momentum, this means the second half would also be growing at at least 5 percent, right? So that would help to achieve that 5.2 percent of the growth uh, projection um, as IMF、uh, put out. Uh, but of course, the concern is if China can maintain the same momentum. When we look at, for example, the retail sales numbers,、um, we saw that the in June the retail sales grew only by 3.1 percent、um, compared, you know, to over on the close to 13 percent in May and close to 15 percent peak、uh, in April this year. So there are some concerns、um, that you know the real estate sector is going to continue to weigh down on China's economy, and the consumption growth will lose some of the steam.、Um, but I think overall,、um, you know, that the economy is still looking good.、Um, it's probably not going to achieve you know over you know six percent growth rate, but I think around five five point two percent growth rate is still within the achievable target. Mm. And a demand from the international market would be weakened. But what do you expect for the domestic consumption in the second half of this year? What could be done to improve the domestic consumption and how to increase residents' income? Yeah, so I think that it's really the trillion-dollar question. I think that is a great um, question. Um, I think yes, the global economy is not going to provide a lot of you know demand for China's economies. So. A large support、um, in terms of demand should come from the Chinese domestic economy. Now, I think the fixed asset investment will continue to grow,、um, especially you know for infrastructure, for manufacturing, and for high tech. But unfortunately, I think the property sector will continue to drag down on that investment. So then, you know, a lot of the Um, support should come from domestic consumption. So I think yes, we need to try to focus on how to stimulate the consumption, especially by creating more jobs、um, and creating more income. And I think the state council recently has、um, put out a series of measures to improve employment services and trying to, you know, provide more subsidies to enterprises to create internship opportunities or job opportunities, and also call for the private sectors. Um, to expand their investment and expand their jobs.、Mm. So on global economy, the IMF talking about several risks in its、uh, global economic outlook, including the persistent、uh, inflation, the fluctuating asset prices, rising debt levels, and geoeconomic fragmentation as well. So could you explain more details on this? And what do you think could be the single biggest risk facing the global economy? Right, I think from the IMF's perspective, inflation is still the sort of enemy number one.、Um, they projected the inflation to remain high at six point eight percent this year,、uh, which was down from eight point seven percent last year. But still, six point eight percent inflation rate is still relatively high, and as a result of that,、um, they also worry that you know there are other events that could intensify the the、um, 
the inflationary pressure, which included, you know, for example, the war um, and also extreme weather related events that could affect, for example, food production. So all these could be, uh, you know, adding more to that inflationary pressure. And as a result of that, um, their concern is more restrictive monetary policy. And as a result of these restrictive monetary policy, this could add to the financial sector, you know, um, turbulence. Uh, both in developed countries and also developing countries. Um, if you recall, in April, the IMF was very concerned about the U.S.'s banking crisis and also the U.S.'s debt debacle. Um, but those seem to be now, um, you know, weighing off. So they revised the growth price upwards. But those are the risks that still cannot be completely ruled out. Mm. Um, the markets still believe widely that the Fed which is going to meet this week, will raise the interest rate by another 25 basis point, despite the fact that now the U.S. inflation rate um, has gone down to only 3% uh, as of June. Um, so if the Fed continues to raise the interest rate and ECB is very likely to do so as well, then these kinds of restrictive monetary policy will continue to weigh down on the economy, but also create more financial uncertainty and risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to mention, you know, higher interest rates is going to add to the developing countries' debt burden and debt crises. So all of these, I think, are uh, continue to be, uh, you know, the, the the biggest, I think, danger and risks mm-hmm. um, for for the for the global economy. And you mentioned developing country. Actually, the IMF has uh, upgraded its forecast for the emerging economies by 0.1%. But the fund is also calling to attention the large short term financing needs of many emerging markets and low income countries is to service their debt in the current uh, environment. So how concerned should we be about these economies? I think for developing countries, um, the situations are very heterogeneous. So there are countries like China and India. Uh, they're the emerging markets, um, and they're growing very well. They're recovering uh, in a very, you know, orderly and robust way. But then there are a lot of other countries, you know, like Argentina or a lot of the sub-Saharan uh, African countries. They're struggled uh, with their debt crises. So I think the situation is very dif- different um, for different countries. But mm. um, I think the, the main point here, yes, is trying to work out a debt resolution for these developing countries that are facing debt crises. Uh, you know, countries like Nigeria, they're spending a lot of the fiscal revenues on paying back the debt service, which I think is a very, very bad situation for the country, right? When you are in an economy um, that is rather fragile and in need of recovery, and yet you're spending very precious fiscal resources on financing the debt. Um, so I think it's definitely important. Uh, right now, I think the countries um, like China and the United States and others, other stakeholders are having the sovereign debt roundtable discussions and trying to come up with you know, resolutions um, to help these developing countries. And I think they have to move and they have to move faster and more effectively. So then um, this will help these developing countries to resolve the debt situation. Mm. And despite the slight upgrade of its global growth projections, the IMF says growth remains weak by historical standards. The average annual growth between the year 2000 and 2019 was 3.8%, and they are projecting 3% growth for this year. So are we entering into a new normal of slower global growth? That's a great question. I think that still remains to be seen. I think, you know, we had a once in a century types of pandemic and that lasted for several years. So in the short term, I think, you know, the, re- the recovery, recovery is, is on the way, but it's difficult to jump right back um, to the pre-pandemic level. Um, but at the same time, we're also in a different world now, um, especially, you know, after the pandemic, after the Russia-Ukraine uh, war, well, which is still going on. Um, and then countries also adopt different strategies and, you know, things like, you know, diversify the supply chain um, or, you know, build more resilient supply chain instead of more efficient supply chain. And some of the geopolitical tensions and the resultant, you know, trade fragmentation or technological fragmentation. So all these, I think, will weigh on um, economic growth over the long term. So the question here is that would the countries be able to craft sensible policies uh, to put the global economy back to the right track, um, or if this continues, right, with all the fermentation continues, um, then we're likely to see slower growth. 
Uh, not to mention, I think this climate change crisis、um, that I think in the long term will definitely slow down the global economic growth.、Um, either country voluntarily right reduce、um, certain economic activities to you know、uh, slow down climate change, or countries involuntarily suffer from these climate change consequences and therefore slow down、um, their economic growth. But either way, I think some of the structural changes could be long lasting. Uh, but hopefully, some of the short-term recovery and also policy、uh, change will help to accelerate that growth. Yan Liang, professor of economics at William Mati University. This is World Today. We'll be back. The U.S. House of Representatives has passed a bill looking to distort China's claim of sovereignty over Taiwan. The bill asserts that a 1971 UN General Assembly resolution does not take a position on the relations on the relations between the People's Republic of China and Taiwan, or include any statement pertaining to Taiwan's sovereignty. In history, that resolution removed Taiwan from the UN as the legal representative government of China. And American lawmakers who have、uh, authored this particular piece of legislation claim they want to prevent Beijing from excluding Taipei from participating in international organizations. In May, the Taiwan Affairs Office within China's State Council described the bill as totally mistaken and ridiculous. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Zhou Wenxing, assistant professor with the with the School of International Studies, Nanjing University. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me here. Now, first of all,、um, can you tell us more about this UN General Assembly Resolution Two Seven Five Eight? Is it really the case, as this U.S. legislation is asserting, that this、um, resolution? Does not include any statement pertaining to the sovereignty of Taiwan. Um, no, I don't think that's the only case. Ah,、uh, you know, the newly passed bill requires the so-called clarification regarding UN Resolution Two Seven Five Eight. Claiming that the resolution establishes the representatives of the government of the PRC as the only lawful representatives of China、uh, to UN and. This bill also assists、uh, that uh, the, UN, the resolution did not address the issue of representation of Taiwan and its people in the UN or any related uh, uh, organizations. But according to the UN resolution two seven five eight, it recognizes that the representatives of the government of the PRC. Are the only lawful representatives of China to the UN, and meanwhile, you know, the、mm-hmm. um, resolution also expelled、uh, the representatives of Chiang Kai-shek、uh, yeah. from the place、uh, which they are unlawfully occupied、uh, at the United Nations. So apparently, the resolution recognizes the representatives of PRC as the only legitimate representatives, and Taiwan did not enjoy any sovereignty. So when UN resolution was passed in 1971, the internationally recognized consensus in that at that time is that Taiwan is part of China. So there's also no necessary to mention the so-called sovereignty of Taiwan simply because Taiwan region did not enjoy the so-called sovereignty. Okay, thank you、uh, for putting this into perspective. So, by the way, how would you look at this、um, allegation from some American politicians and lawmakers that Beijing is making use of this 1971 UN resolution to deliberately exclude Taiwan from participating in international organizations?、Um, indeed, more people in Washington now, not only politicians. But also, some think tank experts tend to claim that Beijing has been making full of UN resolution to exclude the Taipei from international organizations. But as I said, and as it is internationally recognized that there is but one China in the world, and Taiwan is part of China's territory, and the government of the PRC is the sole legal government representing the whole China. But as China's relations deteriorated in recent years,、uh, as we know. Washington has become、uh, more willing to employ the Taiwan question to 
to contain China. So yeah. uh, some uh, separatists on the island of Taiwan are ramping up their efforts to seek independence with the help of external forces. What mm-hmm. China is now is doing and has been, done, has been done for so many years is just reasonable and understandable. So Beijing is simply doing what must be done and it will continue to do so uh, in the near future. Mm. So, by the way, when we talk about Taiwan's uh, involvement in international organizations, of course, a widely reported example in the media is regarding its uh, participation in the World Health Organization, uh, you know, negotiation mechanisms. Um, during the COVID-19 pandemic, Taipei claimed that it's... Um, Inability to get involved in the WHO because of Beijing's uh, objection brought a lot of um, headache and uh, difficulty to Taiwan's uh, response to the COVID-19 virus. To your knowledge, was that really the case? Oh, well, to my knowledge, this is not the case. You know, the uh, Democratic Progressive Party, DPP authorities, um, attempted to enlarge uh, Taipei's international space by seeking, uh, thinking to uh, be an observer, uh, to enjoy an observer status of the WHO in recent years. And the outbreak of the COVID-19 virus just um, opened a so-called, you know, opportunity window for the GPP authorities to achieve that goal. But Beijing opposed the GPP's efforts, of course. Uh, but also, on the other hand, Beijing um, provided some support for the Taiwan region to gain some latest information and also some policy uh, issued by the WHO uh, concerning the virus. So uh, and I know it's, it's both on international level and also on bilateral level that is between both sides of the Taiwan Strait. So uh, Beijing did help, you know, Taipei to to um, uh, fight against the virus rather than, you know, um, object um, Taipei to to, to, to do that. Mm, okay. So uh, going back to our discussion surrounding this uh, latest uh, U.S. bill, uh, we understand in order to pass this uh, legislation, actually both the House and the Senate in the Congress have to pass the same bill by a majority vote. So how would you look at the prospect of this um, bill being passed by the, by the Senate? Well, my sense is that the so-called Taiwan International Solidarity Act is less likely to pass in the Senate. Okay. So I have several reasons. First, you know, this bill does not have a solid support from the from two parties. Uh, the bill was proposed by a key member of pro-Taiwan um, Congressional Taiwan Caucus. This is a pro-Taiwan uh, a committee affiliated um, to uh, Congress. So... Uh, this bill has been sponsored by 14 representatives, but more than half of them are members of the uh, pro-Taiwan uh, caucus. So in this case, the bill is only seemingly supported by members from two parties, but, but actually it is not. And second, um, the bill could not gain popularity um, in the more rational Senate uh, as it did uh, in the House. You know, traditionally, we know the 100-member upper chamber of the Congress is more rational in terms of lawmaking, particularly when it would be thought as provocable. Besides, we should bear in our mind that the Senate is now under control of Democrats. Uh, Democratic senators may not agree on the contents of this bill. Most importantly, um, the Biden administration mm-hmm. does not want to get into trouble as the bill may bring uh, more uncertainties to the um, worsening ties uh, with China. Yeah, indeed, because recently there has been a lot of um, diplomatic engagement between Washington and Beijing, and actually in the most recent uh, media interview conducted over the past weekend, uh, U.S. top diplomat Anthony Blinken actually said that the Biden administration was seeking ways to stabilize the relations with China. So I guess uh, Biden administration does not really want to take any measure immediately to provoke China over the Taiwan issue or the Taiwan question. I guess that's the message 
Dr. Zhou Ye trying to send to our audiences. But thank you very much for joining us.、Uh, that was Dr. Zhou Wenxing, assistant professor with the School of International Studies, Nanjing University. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology, and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin, Beijing. The U.S. Department of Education has opened a formal probe into Harvard University over a practice of favoring undergraduate applicants who are related to alumni or big donors. The decision is coming after a complaint filed earlier this month by three Massachusetts-based advocates for minority groups. They argue that the use of donor or so-called legacy preferences. Is discriminatory, calling for a halt to such practices if the Ivy League school is to continue to receive federal funding. And for your information, between 2014 and 2019, legacy applicants to Harvard were almost six times more likely to be admitted compared to others, while applicants related to donors were nearly seven times more likely. It's estimated more than 100 U.S. colleges and universities have scrapped legacy admissions since 2015, including Johns Hopkins University. So, joining us now on the line is Harvey Zoden, former vice president of ABC TV Network and a senior fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, of course, I mean critics of the so-called legacy admissions would argue that doing so would limit social mobility and equitable access to higher education opportunities. However, defenders of the status quo would argue that legacies and donors、um, would help universities to finance those、um, scholarships and other programs, which might, in return,、uh, support. More admissions, more recruitment of underrepresented ethnic groups or other kind of social groups. Which argument is more powerful, in your opinion? Well, the honest answer is all of the above, because public policy—it's always been a balancing act. So it really depends on whose axe is being gored.、Uh, let's take the Asian students. Conventional wisdom suggests that if there were Absolutely open admissions based on grades and test scores alone. That Harvard classes could be upwards of three quarters of the population of students as Asian. Today they're under thirty percent. Blacks are fifteen percent. Hispanics are thirteen percent.、Uh, on the other hand, if you want to have a diverse student body that reflects the country and the world, you need diversity on so many levels. There's no right answer. There's no simple answer. You have to feel differently、um, if you are a poor black or Hispanic student who might be the first in your family who went to college based on a bump up by affirmative action, or getting denied、uh, admission in favor of somebody who contributed a lot of money. But life's unfair. That's what Jimmy Carter said, and Jimmy Carter's right. Hmm. So, by the way, to elite、um, schools like Harvard. To what extent are their, you know, university、um, operations、uh, financed by donors?、Mm. Well, it's by a huge amount, actually.、Okay. Harvard has the largest endowment on planet Earth, over fifty billion dollars. That's ten billion dollars more than Yale. Of course. They've been fundraising for nearly four centuries and have some of the best annual returns on their money of any institutional investor. But Harvard University, on the other hand, it's not cheap to run. It has an annual budget of five billion dollars, or one tenth of its endowment. Okay, so can you tell us about the days when you were receiving、uh, university education、uh, in America? Um, and compared to the days back then, 
Is it easier or is it much more challenging and difficult for、um, a kid from an average middle-class American family、um, to be, you know, to be admitted into an elite university like Harvard, like Yale nowadays?、Mm. I think it's much more difficult today. Because there are many more qualified applicants now than there were in the '60s and '70s, so for a middle-class applicant, it was not easy then, and it is, isn't easy now. So personally, I resent someone like Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, getting into Harvard because his father contributed two and a half million dollars to Harvard during、uh, Jared's admission process.、Okay. But hey. On the other hand, Harvard needs the money to maintain its excellence. So again, like I said earlier, it depends on whose axe is getting gored. And legacy admissions are a fact of life, and I think that they're going to be、uh, a factor、uh, in the future, but maybe less than today.、Hmm. Now, of course, when we talk about this、um, topic、uh, for the current episode of show. Uh, one thing related is the UN is the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling on affirmative action last month, which have designated, you know, including race as a criteria for university recruitment as unconstitutional. So, to kids from rich families, Harvey, do you think donor and legacy preferences are actually another form of affirmative action? <laughs> yes, in a perverse kind of way, they're affirmative action for the rich. So, to me, it shows that in America, many many things boil down to money. So, do you think that Kushner's father-in-law, Donald Trump, had the brains to get into an Ivy League university like University of Pennsylvania on his? <laughs> Let's、yeah. call it intellectual prowess. No way! It's another legacy that in America, money talks, BS walks. The same as in Washington. And like Carter said, life is indeed unfair. Okay. Yeah, it's a pretty dismal picture you have、um, pointed, but、uh, hopefully things will improve. You know, people should、uh, should never lose hope. But、uh, we will see how things will turn out to be. But thank you very much. That's Dr. Harvey Zoden. Former Vice President of ABC TV Network and a senior fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. Unfortunately, that's all the time for this edition of World Today. A quick recap of today's headline news: Senior Chinese diplomat Wang Yi proposes four points for global South cooperation. The IMF has lifted growth forecast, but economic challenges persist. To listen to this episode again, or to catch up on our previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching "World Today." For more, you can follow us on Twitter at CGTN Radio. I'm Ding Hunting Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.